House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, and we're back now. And uh, joining us, as we said earlier, uh, Tom Westcott. Um, he's uh, been involved in the uh, <laughs> Jack the Ripper murders, or as, as we say, not involved, but he wrote uh, the Bank Holiday Murders. And how are you doing tonight, Tom? I am doing awesome, Al. How are you? I can't complain. All right. I can't complain. It could be worse. <laughs> no, actually doing okay. Got a little bit of snow last night, but I guess that's winter, you know. I'm in Oklahoma. Our winter is uh, its nothing but soggy rain until it decides to freeze and become ice. Ooh. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I don't know if I like that. Oh well. <laughs> so okay, now let's let's get into this. Now let's let's start out with you first of all. So uh, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, how did you get interested in Jack the Ripper? Uh, well, you know that, and that is a good question because you know why would I, you know, become interested in a series of murders that happened in another country in, in, in another century? Uh, it, it snuck up on me actually. I had been interested. I became interested in true crime. I think at a very young age. If I could trace it all the way back, it would be in the mid '80s in the very first episode of the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that with my mother. The first episode was hosted by Orson Welles, and then Robert Stack took over from there. And you know, and it, it was neat. It was like I was always into horror and Kiss and things like that. Uh, and and this was like a horror horror movies, but they were true, and that intrigued me. And from there, I started getting books on you know more recent contemporary cases, uh, the Green River Killer, who at the time you know was still unca- hadn't been captured, and Ted Bundy, and of course Charles Manson. Uh, and I wasn't interested in the Ripper or anything old. They they didn't intrigue me. But then it was in the late nineties. By this point, I was in my uh, well into my 20s, and I was at a used bookstore in the horror section looking at horror novels. Someone had sat down a Jack the Ripper book, a, a nonfiction Ripper book. I guess they had thought about buying it, decided against it, and set it down in the wrong aisle. And uh, it caught my eye, and I picked it up, and, and it was a, ch- a little cheap paperback. And I thought, what the heck? You know, I've been kind of curious about Jack the Ripper, so I'm going to buy this. And uh, And I went home. Unbeknownst to me, I had just bought one of the least reputable books and and in Ripperology, but it, it grabbed me, you know. And I was like, "Oh, I think this guy solved it." And uh, but then I realized, "Oh, there's there's other solutions." So I, I went to the library and checked out some books, and then I got on the uh, internet. I didn't, you know, this was the '90s. I didn't actually own a computer, so I went to the library and used their internet. And found this world out there uh, called Ripperology, and uh, Casebook.org is still the main Ripper site, and it was the only one then. And uh, found there and found this group of people talking about it, and I've been and, and it just got me hooked. And at that time, though, like anyone else, you know, I'm not going. Ooh, I'm going to solve the case. I just wanted to see what other researchers had found and figured out over the years, read the different arguments, and I figured somewhere in here I'm going to find the, you know, someone else has done the work and found the solution, and and uh, but that's not the case. Uh, 
And so I, the more you get into it, it just pulls you in is what happened. Next thing you know, um, you know, I'm buying a Ripper book and I, I, you know, I've read enough of them. I'm starting to pick out the errors. I'm starting to, you know, new ideas, original ideas are coming to me. And, uh, and I become part of the research process as opposed to just an outside observer. And, it, and that's, and that's where it went from there. And then, uh, all the way up to the, the present, right. uh, where I decided I, I knew some things that warranted a book. And that's how the Bank Holiday Murders came about. Why do you think there's such a popularity with Jack the Ripper? Like, it, it specifically, as in, you know, there's been different serial murders, and certain ones stay with us. And uh, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, no, and that, that is a good question. Like, for instance, uh, again, you know, here I am in America. Uh, you know, why did I know who Jack the Ripper was before I knew who the Cleveland Torso Killer was? You know what I'm saying? Because... He was 50 years more recent. He killed at least twice as many women in more brutal a fashion. And right here in our own country, legendary Elliot Ness investigated the case. This should be this should be the case that everyone knows about, but almost nobody does. Yet we all know the name Jack the Ripper, and uh, it, it it comes down to a matter of timing. I think uh, in 1888, which is when the murders occurred in London. Uh, certain things had, had happened. Um, the telephone had become, you know, was invented. Uh, telegraphs were wi- widely in use, but more importantly, uh, the generation before had created the public school system. So more people than ever in history knew how to read and write, and newspapers were so popular we can't even conceive of it today. Um, the, uh, you know, like now you go to London and what they probably have two or three major newspapers. Well, there was well over a hundred at in eighteen eighty eight. That's how popular they were. Um, all the American newspapers would uh, have London correspondents who would write specifically for them. So now we've got multiple hundreds of newspapers covering across the world, telegraphing over information as it happens and writing about this case and uh, it became a cause celeb. It was something that everyone was discussing and and following as it as it unraveled. And then in the midst of all this, you have this name Jack the Ripper, um, which immediately leaked into the public conscience. Conscience and uh, and this was all on the dawn of of the Hollywood era. And so then you have like Alfred Hitchcock. You know what was his first uh, film was the silent uh, film The Lodger. Which was a Jack the Ripper movie, um, and uh, and and so it's just it, and from that point forward, Jack the Ripper wasn't just a a serial killer, or a true crime case. He he was also a fictional character, right? And and a vehicle for that. So you have this powerful image of a man in a a top hat and a cloak. You have a gaslight and fog. You uh, you know uh, all of this going on, and then you have that name Jack the Ripper. And who you know he it was the ultimate mystery novel with the last chapter torn out. Um, it's not surprising that it hasn't gone away. It is. It, it's surprising that it's it, it's more popular now because see you have to more more Jack the Ripper books have been published since July than mm-hmm. were published in the first fifty years following the murders. Hmm. I wonder why that is. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, it, well, it's it's you know, of course, he's a brand now. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be a commercial aspect. Of you know, like and and but see, that's also why I chose not to use his name in the title of my my book, because um, ev- every Jack the Ripper book has either the full name Jack the Ripper or at least the word Ripper. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's identifying and all of that. Publishers insist on it, but since since I, I was publishing my own, I said um, on my first book, also because I, I focus on the pre-Ripper murders of the Whitechapel series, the Whitechapel murder series. Those are my focus, and I thought it you know, would be disingenuous to title this Jack the Ripper since uh, most people don't believe, and, and we don't know that these women were actually killed by Jack the Ripper. So I titled it, uh, the Bank Holiday Murders, uh, the true story of the first Whitechapel murders. Right. And it is it's it is most definitely a Ripper book. If you're into the Ripper or Ripper books and all of that, um, you know, this is one you need to get. Um, but it is not your typical Ripper book by any means. Right. So now in your book, you're not just covering the five victims that they associate, you know, from August 31st to November 9th, 1888. You're you're counting all eleven murders, then? No, I'm not. Well, what I'm doing is, see, what happened is I sat down to write a completely different book, um, and I said, well, in re- you know, I'm going to start. I, although I've been researching the case, you know, for many years, um, you know, when you're going to go to write a book, you you've got to start fresh, and you you've got to start at the beginning, and you've got to focus and. And, you know, because you forget things over the years and, and all of this. So I said, I'm going to start at square one. And that is not Polly Nichols on August 31st. The, the first, in the official police file, Scotland Yard files of the Whitechapel murders, the first victim is Emma Smith um, in, in April of 1888. So I said, I'm going to start there. And, and that's what I did. And, and, and I put away all the, all the Ripper books that have come out. I, I started with looking at the actual police files and the newspaper reports, contemporary information, also memoirs written years later by the original investigators. I started with the source material, and in doing so, I started noticing there's a lot of stuff that the modern Ripper books don't tell us or that they get wrong or that they just haven't seen before or looked at before. Uh, I noticed that with Emma Smith, and then it really hit home when I looked at the murder of Martha Tabram and realized <clears throat> that the, her murder did not occur in the way that we're told it did in all the Ripper books, where they say she was stabbed 39 times in a frenzy. Uh, she was indeed stabbed 39 times, but she was also um, raped with... Uh, and in, with, with one of the knives, um, probably the longer of the two knives, she was also had her top torn off, her breasts were exposed, her skirt was hiked up. She was in a position that that took that looked at, to the person who found her as though she had been raped. In other words, the killer had spent um, it wasn't just a frenzy stab and run. He spent some time with her on that that stairwell, and. Uh, very, there's a lot of things that were actually similar to the the, ne- the Polly Nichols murder, which in my next book I'll have some revelations about that too. But uh, in Bank Holiday Murders, I start with Emma Smith, Martha Tabram. I also present information for the first time on Emily Horsnell, who um, 
in all by all rights is really the first Whitechapel murder. The only reason she didn't make it into the files is that uh, the coroner, um, as it talks about in my book, the coroner, this this young lady was beaten to death, um, probably raped also with an, an inanimate object, as was Emma Smith and Martha Tabram. And then, uh, but the police said, we're not going to investigate this because honestly we don't have any leads. So the coroner said, well, then there's no point in doing an autopsy. And he would not return a, allow the jury to return a verdict of murder. He returned a verdict of open, therefore not making it an official murder. Thus, it can't be a Whitechapel murder. But she would officially be the very, uh, unofficially is the first Whitechapel murder. And that's discussed in my book for the first time. It was a discovery made by a researcher named Deborah Arif, um, fantastic researcher, and uh, I wish we knew more about this young lady, Emily Horsnell, but there's virtually nothing known about her at this time other than uh, the base, you know, how she died. And even that's not fully known because there was no autopsy performed on her. But it appears that she was set up on an attack, beaten severely, um, died of peritonitis, uh, which is an injuries of the internal organs. The next victim, Emma Smith, uh, was also beaten severely, raped with an inanimate object, died of peritonitis, and, and her murder occurred on a bank holiday uh, near Easter, which, for those who don't know, that's a UK term, I guess, bank holiday. We don't use that term in America, but it, it basically signifies a holiday in which the banks are closed. We're, we're having one of those, you know, yeah. Thanksgiving, Christmas. Uh <laughs> And uh, so that's where the name, because Emma Smith was killed on a bank holiday. The very next bank holiday, Martha Tabram was murdered. And uh, so I thought, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting. That's not coincidence. Her, the, whoever killed these women, um, that must have meant something to them. Not, not, not on a deep level. It just means they were off work and, yeah, and yeah. whatever. But, see, here's the funny thing. Ripperologists all these years have debated as to whether Martha Tabram was a Ripper victim or not. They've always said, well, Martha Tabram, was she a Ripper? What no one has ever talked about is, is forget the Ripper for a minute. Did the same person or people kill Martha Tabram who killed Emma Smith? Were these, ki were these people killed by the same person? That question is never asked. And that was a question I wanted to answer, and I believe I do in my book. Uh, the conclusion is... Um, it would be remarkable if these murders were not related. First of all, murders were very rare in the East End of London at that time. This kind of a murder was extremely rare. They, they, these were not domestic murders. They were stranger murders. These women were prostitutes. They were brutalized uh, in a public setting. Um, their killers were not named nor caught. Both women uh, were beaten up on the head. Uh, they were... Uh, again, raped in, 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 with a blunt ob or with an inanimate object. In Emma Smith's case, a blunt object. In, in Martha's case, a bladed object. Uh, and, and there was an escalation there. Emma was not stabbed, whereas uh, Martha Tabram was stabbed multiple times with two different blades. And which some have suggested might point to two different killers, and it might. But you know, of course, one person could yeah. also have two different blades on him. Huh. Why do you think the other uh, people researching has never have never really gotten into like the Emily Horsnell and Smith? Well, and Emily Horsnell is a relatively recent discovery. That that has only 
and again, my books, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's the only one, the first one to ever mention it. Uh, relatively recent discovery, but um, why haven't they asked those questions? I don't know, because everyone's focused on Jack the Ripper. The big question is, who was the first Ripper victim? And, and nobody looks any further in the past than Martha Tabram, because she was killed with a knife, whereas Emma Smith was not. And so there, people don't see a connection there. But they're very connected. I mean, the murders occurred so close together um, that you could, like, throw a, a baseball and go from one to the other. And so close together. Um, both of the women, although they never knew each other, they came from uh, Emma Smith uh, lived in 18 George Street. Uh, Martha Tabram's final address was next door at 19 George Street. Right. Martha did not move to that house until after Emma had been murdered, so that's why I say they wouldn't have known each other. Um, Emily Horsnow, uh comes from 19 George Street. Another victim, Margaret Haynes, who survived, but she was brutalized in December of, of 87. She was beaten in the, the same fashion Emily Horsnell and Emma Smith were, but, but she survived. Uh, and, and she came from 18 George Street. So now you have uh, Emily Horsnell, Emma Smith, Margaret Hames, Martha Tabram, four women, uh, either, you know, three of them murdered, and another one beaten near death, uh, had to spend a month in the hospital, um, all coming from these two neighboring houses. And they were neighboring. They weren't, uh, even though it's 18 and 19, you'd think they'd be across the street from each other. They weren't. They were next door to each other. Uh, I thought that was, that, if that's a coincidence, that's extraordinary, considering no similar uh, attacks occurred anywhere in the great city of, of London. Um, so it's extraordinary that four of them would occur in the same section of city, let alone same street, let alone two neighboring houses. I'm thinking there might be a connection here. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I certainly know I wouldn't want to live on George Street. <laughs> right. Right. Well, absolutely. Especially not if you were a middle-aged uh, yeah. alcoholic prostitute, as these women were. Well, yeah. they weren't all middle-aged, actually. Emily Horsnow was in her 20s. Uh, the other three were, were uh, you know, 30s to early 40s. And the... Uh, one of the things that occurred in the Martha Tavern investigation is a woman claiming to be her friend uh, named Marianne Connolly, a.k.a. Pearly Paul, and that's P-O-L-L, -L, short for Polly. Mm -hmm. And actually, and the name Polly is a derivative of the name Marianne. So usually when you see someone going by the name Polly, their, their real name is Marianne. So uh, in her case, it was Pearly Paul. She goes to the police uh, is the first to successfully identify the body as Martha Tabram. Actually, she called her Emma because that was the name she said Martha went by. They, she said Martha lived with her at the lodging house at 19 George Street, and they were friends, and she said that she had spent Bank Holiday out with Martha, going from pub to pub, drinking with a couple of soldiers, uh, and then they separated with uh, Pearly Paul and her soldier going one way, Martha and hers going another, and a couple hours later, Martha is murdered. So, Pearly Paul becomes a very important witness. <clears throat> Thing is, um, she her whole story was a lie, she, and and uh, the police figured that out at the time, although they had a hard time proving it. 
And uh, because in order to prove it was a lie, they had to prove that Pearly Paul was somewhere else or that Martha Tabram was somewhere else other than where she said, and they couldn't do that. But they also couldn't find one single person to corroborate their story. Now, two very dirty, drunk, unattractive, middle-aged women out walking with two young soldiers in uniform as Pearly Paul claimed, that would that would that might stand out, yeah. and they were from pub to pub. Uh, not one person could put them together. Pearly Paul was caught in a number of lies, and uh, more importantly, though, it seemed that before she went to the police, she had concocted this story. She, obviously, she didn't make it up on the fly. She concocted. I even identified her the source for her story, and it's in my book. But. And I keep in mind, the victim had not yet been identified as Martha Tabram before she went to the police. So somehow, Pearly Paul, before she went to the police, before she saw the body, she had concocted the story, but more importantly, she already knew that the unnamed dead woman was, in fact, Martha Tabram. And it occurred to me, how would she know that uh, unless she knew the murderer? And why would she go and lie to the police? Risk, keep in mind that she, there was no reward. There was no personal gain for her. And as a career criminal, she would have avoided the police at all costs, not seek them out. So, you know, and, and then by lying to them and potentially getting caught in a lie and facing prison time, there's no gain for her unless the gain was to lie to the police to get them searching for suspects that didn't exist to get them off the trail of the real killer. And it worked because it, they sent them doing numerous identity parades where she picked out two men and said, yep, those are the soldiers. The men had ironclad alibis. She was obviously just lying to the police again. She then disappeared, um, ran away to hide from the police, Claimed, told people she was going to go commit suicide. They eventually found her and brought her back. But this was very fishy, very fishy, and it occurred to me, well, Pearly Paul lived at an address where two women had been murdered, um, and next door to another woman who'd been murdered, and a woman who'd almost been murdered, and and she, she seems to have inside information, let's follow her. Well, then Pearly Paul moves, right after the Tabra murder, she moves from 19 George Street to 35 Dorset Street. And within a few weeks of Pearly Paul moving to this address, 35 Dorset Street, within a few weeks, two women are murdered, and these become the first two canonical Jack the Ripper victims, Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman. Now, my book will be the first book that you see the address 35 Dorset Street given to Polly Nichols. All the other Ripper books put her at a different address. Um, but in my research, I simply looking at her death certificate, which has been on the Internet for 10 years, I saw that her final address was, in fact, 35 Dorset Street. So this presents a new piece of the puzzle. So it seems wherever Pearly Paul goes, people show up dead. Mm. And, and I thought, well, this you know, could be a coincidence, although how many women can now be connected to six victims? you know, within a very short period of time and after having moved. It's remarkable, and it gets even more remarkable when you consider that uh, Annie Chapman, just before she was murdered, um, there was a woman who lived at 35 Dorset Street who was, 
Annie clearly did not get along with because they got into at least one fist fight um, just before Annie Chapman was murdered. Well, this woman happens to be a friend of Pearly Paul's. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because now there's even more direct connection between them. The police did go and talk to Pearly Paul about the Chapman murder, and her friend was looked at as a suspect in the murder. People assumed that no women were ever looked at as suspects, but that's not true. Uh, so now do I believe... This sounds like I'm building an argument that Pearly Paul was Jack the Ripper. Uh, no, she was not. Uh, I don't think she was physically capable of doing it. She was in bad health. Also, whoever killed these women would have had to have been taller and much stronger than them. And uh, so I'm pretty sure we're looking at a male killer, perhaps more than one. Uh, but it's, it's just quite a coincidence with her. Well, it, it, it's, it, it almost stretches beyond the realm of coincidence to, I think she knew who it was. So then, you, then the next question I asked myself was, well, who did Pearly Paul, who would have this kind of control and power over her to get her to go lie to the police? Because that's a big deal, you know. Uh, yeah. And I started researching it and found out, well, there's the one group of people in the East End who had more power than the police were the landlords uh, because they controlled where you slept, where you ate, if you ate, if you slept, if you worked. Um, they controlled all that. They paid the police, and I have a lot of research and, on that in the book. And uh, and I centered on a you know a few because when you look at where all the victims lived, these houses were owned by a small group of landlords who all happened to be friends or even related by marriage. Uh, one of them is John McCarthy, who is the uh, was the landlord of Mary Kelly. The final canonical victim who incidentally died at 27 Dorset Street. Um, uh, she drank at the uh, same pub as Annie Chapman, as would have Pearly Paul, you know. I mean, all these women appear to have known each other to some extent. I hadn't yet been able to directly link Pearly Paul to uh, Liz Stride and Catherine Eddowes, but they lived on Flower and Dean Street, which would not have you know, which is in the same vicinity, very close, actually, to George Street. Very, very, it was like one street over or something. Uh, very close. Uh, so the connections, there. there's a lot of them. And there's probably, I think we're turning up, since my book's come out, um, you know, more interesting connections have turned up. Uh, I also, in my book, point the finger uh, at a Sergeant William Thick, a police sergeant, who was friendly with the landlords, um, definitely taking money from him. And he attempts to uh, frame a, a character named John Pizer, frame him for the murders and calling him by the name Leather Apron, which was the name originally given to the killer before Jack the Ripper. Right. And he fails in, in his attempts to frame Pizer, but... You know, I started asking the question, well, why did he try to frame Pizer? What's the point of that? And he didn't do so on the behest of the police. That's clear. And that's when I discovered his connection to these same landlords that would have held sway over Pearly Paul. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? The thing is, is I don't have anything concrete. Uh, there's nothing there. I haven't found some lost document that said, I, 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 you know, I know who Jack the Ripper is. I 
None of that, but but it's not theory and speculation either. Everything in my book comes from actual documents and his, you know, the 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 police reports, the newspaper reports, other sources like that. It's all coming from that, and it's all detailed in there. How good do you think the policing was back then? Oh, overall, very different from today, but mm-hmm. overall, uh, very good. Um, the difference is. Um, police today operate very much in the same way that uh, um, Pizza Hut does. Um, you know, you go, oh, I want a pizza. You make a phone call, and a little while later they arrive at your door. So um, police today are reactive. It's it's they're they're like ambulances. Um, back then, the police were were more proactive. They, you know, every you know every policeman had a beat. These were patrol constables. They walked around constantly. They wore loud shoes, uh, so you could hear them coming. Um, the idea being, their presence in the area would would help prevent crime, not just you know solve it after it's happened. Right. They checked all the doors and everything. Yeah. They would absolutely that night. Um, they would uh, check the locks as they walked by. Uh, if you paid them a little extra money, they would knock on your door in the morning to make sure you're up in time for work. This was in the age before, you know, alarm clocks. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but yeah, so in, in some respects, you might argue that policing was more effective than, than it is now. Um, so, uh, that, but at the same time, these, these uh, bobbies, as they were called, had uh, just a horrible job to do because you know they they didn't carry. It's still to, to this day, police in London don't have guns. They don't carry guns, so they were constantly the victims of abuse, and their lives would be made hell. Um, especially in the East End, to where they, a lot of them really wouldn't have had a choice but to be uh, working for the landlords, uh, looking out for them and their interests, which included illegal boxing, of course, prostitution. Uh, you know things like that stolen receiving and selling of stolen goods these these were the trade you know this there was no crack cocaine for them to sell back then so <laughs> it was, they had other means of making a living and the, and the police uh, were in on it for for sure no question about it and, and some of them wanted to be in on it for the money or the girls others I, I think just they wanted to stay alive you know and if they you know, they they didn't want to get basically murdered as, as as would sometimes happen or beaten up on a regular basis. So, but what what would you think about like um, a lot of theories and ideas where the, the person would have to have some sort of surgical knowledge? You know? That's a good question. Um, looking at the uh, the if you like, for instance, Annie. This mostly comes from Annie Chapman, the murder of Annie Chapman. She was murdered in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street in the early hours, and uh, her killer um, removed her uterus in such a fashion that the uh, d- police divisional surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, was uh, could barely contain how impressed he was at the giving his evidence at the inquest. He thought it would have taken him the better part of an hour to do what Jack the Ripper did in a matter of minutes. And uh, he said that there was no misplaced cuts or anything. And this, you know, so, but that does not necessarily require surgical skill. But I do believe that the Ripper possessed some sort of anatomical knowledge, number one. And number two, he was definitely comfortable with the use of a knife. 
Absolutely, because a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to cut someone's throat. We watch Friday the 13th and these movies where it looks like you know, they just run a knife across someone's throat, and there's but it's actually, if you don't, you know, get right on the carotid artery and you don't cut deep, you won't get it done. And most of the times, when people are murdering someone, there, you know, it's it's there's a lot of false cuts, false starts, a lot of yeah. You know, the Ripper had none of that. Uh, just you know, boosh, he knew exactly when and how to do it. Sometimes in pitch blackness, and uh, you know, so. Uh, that's another thing that really sets the... These are very different murders from, say, Ted Bundy. Right. Um, you know, who had a car, who had places he could take victims to. The Jack the Ripper did this on the open street in, in, in the busiest city in the world, in an area where there was a ton of foot traffic all through the night. And he escaped detection by the skin of his teeth. That's why the victims were found... Very sometimes, you know, some of these Whitechapel murder victims weren't even dead yet when they were found. So, and yet he escaped detection time after time after time. So there was, he, it wasn't all luck. People say, oh, it was luck. No, there, in part, partly it was, but I think he came prepared in the event he was discovered. He had a way to get out and uh, he possibly had an accomplice. Uh, there is no direct evidence to suggest that. Um, but there, you know, if you look at some of the witness evidence, there's the possibility uh, of, of two men working together. Well, he had to be very confident and competent at, like, you know, removing body organs and cutting them up and cutting their throat. Yeah. To be able to do it so quick and efficiently in front of a very busy area and to be gone. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is the Ripper obviously... He didn't get caught because he didn't want to get caught. He clearly did not want to get caught. And if you, if you follow his murders, um, how they move about, it's clear he's trying to, he is taking preventative measures to keep it safe for himself. But obviously this overwhelming need to murder and mutilate overwhelmed his desire to not, you know, to stay away from the hangman's noose. He was willing to risk that for some reason. So um, he didn't have sex with these women. And he didn't uh, masturbate on them. He, uh, you know, but he did, and, and there was no screams that, that anyone heard, which is interesting. Uh, so he subdued them in some way, rendered them unconscious, and not, not always by hitting them on the head either. And I talk about how he likely did it in my, in my book. Um, and then, you know, he would cut their throats sometimes twice, uh, let them bleed out a bit roll them over on their back, and then in the case of, uh, you know, Annie Chapman, uh, you know, he removed her uterus uh, and stole rings from her fingers, cut open her pockets. Uh, in the case of uh, Catherine Eddowes in Mitre Square, he uh, was working in near-pitch blackness. So he had far less light to work with, so his job of cutting was not clean at all, but he managed to remove her left kidney. He managed to remove her uh, uterus. He cut the tip of her nose off. He did not take it with him, though. And uh, he nicked her eyelids and cut uh, uh, chevrons into her face, upside-down Vs. He then, um, or possibly before doing any of this, removed 
a portion of a large portion of her long, dirty white apron, which he did take with him. And then a few streets over, uh, he left this apron under a piece of uh, chalk graffiti that uh, read, in essence, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. <clears throat> and and then he disappeared, never to be, you know, seen again until he emerged the next month uh, and killed Mary. Now, you know, the next victim he kills was indoors, and that's Mary Kelly. Uh, one of the most br first crime scene photos ever taken, by the way, um, because hers, oh, she, a photo of her was taken while still lying on her bed in her home, um, and it's probably the first crime scene photo ever taken. Also, remains to this day one of the most gruesome. Hmm. He's, he's. Have you seen it, Alan? No, I haven't seen that picture. You haven't. No. He spent a lot of time in that room. Um, and, uh, you know, removed the flesh from her bones, removed her breasts, put one under her pillow, um, one by her feet, uh, cut her face off, although he did not injure her ears, nor did he injure her eyeballs. Um, he, he made sure he didn't do that for some reason. He positioned her, uh, you have to look at the photos, but, and then he simply, would have been absolutely covered in blood. He would have done this while nude and then put his clothes back on and left uh, her place. And uh, nobody any the wiser as to who he was. Hmm. Did he send it? Like now on Catherine Eddowes, is, that's the part of the victim that he, or the, the kidney yes. that mm -hmm. he sent to George Lusk, right? Uh, George Lusk, who was the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee in mid-October, did receive a package that contained a part of a human kidney and a, a letter attached um, uh, addressed from hell, which is where the well-known uh, graphic novel and film get their name from, from hell. And it was not signed Jack the Ripper, um, but it was, uh, you know, basically telling him, here's a portion, here's a piece of the kidney, the other piece I fried and ate, it was very nice, uh, catch me when you can is what it said, and uh, now that m may or may not have come from the killer. It may have been a, a hoax. Um, I mean, I in my I, I do know who sent that package, but I don't know that he was the killer. He was a suspect, um, and that's going to be discussed in an upcoming book of mine, but I don't know that that... The, the evidence at the time, it, 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 like so much in this case, it can go either way, there's evidence uh, to suggest it was not Catherine Eddowes' kidney. And then there are statements on record that state that it was Catherine Eddowes' kidney. You know what I'm saying? So we yeah. don't know. Um, I will say this. If anything, in the, if, if that, the only thing that could be DNA tested that could potentially prove the identity of the Ripper, it is the Lusk kidney. If that is ever discovered, and I'm certain it's, was dis destroyed generations ago. But if it could ever be discovered in the bowels of the London Hospital and it can be tested and proved to be Catherine Eddowes' kidney, then we might have, be able to put at least uh, her murder to bed with a solution. But there is nothing else out there that could be DNA tested that could lead to the identity of the Ripper. Right. So, so then uh, the recent... Uh discovery of the shawl and Russell Edwards and his naming the Jack the Ripper book 
So you think that that can't be or? Correct. I think it, it, it has no relevance whatsoever to the Ripper case. Uh, the shawl incidentally is not new. It's, it's, uh, you know, I've known about it since the nineties. I wrote it actually in my book, which was published in February before, long before it, Russell Edwards came out in September. In the, there's an appendix in the back of my book. I spend four pages talking about that shawl. And this is something we've talked about for years. Um, the shawl has absolutely zero historical provenance. Um, simply meaning that uh, Catherine Eddowes did not own a, uh, a silk shawl. This thing was would have been worth a lot of money in 1888. She wouldn't have had it in her hands for more than five minutes before selling it. And it's an eight-foot long shawl, by the way. And uh, Russell Edwards, Edwards recognizes this. But see, that's the family story. The, the family that had the shawl all these years said that their descendant, P.C. Amos Simpson, uh, was the first on the scene in Mitre Square and took the shawl. Not only does that make no sense, because, well, one, the historic record's very clear on who the first constable was on the scene, and that was P.C. Edward Watkins. But let's just say, let's just say Amos Simpson was the first one there. Um, why would he, instead of raising the alarm and letting people know that a murder happened, why would he decide, oh, instead of doing that, I'm going to take this blood-covered and semen-covered eight-foot-long shawl back to my wife because, you know, she might want it for the fabric, you know, that is covered in blood. So that makes, and so now you have a constable walking through the streets with this giant bloody shawl um, instead of raising the alarm for murder. Uh, if that happened, then I'm going to tell you what, Amos Simpson is Jack the Ripper. Amos Simpson killed Catherine Eddowes. But the reality is, um, uh, before the body, after discovering, before the body was moved, Drawings were made of it, and these exist to this day, and they show no shawl. Um, so there was no shawl from the uh, on that scene. Uh, from that moment, uh, her body was discovered. Catherine Eddowes had all, was only an hour out of jail, and the jailers had to take everything from uh, the person. She was arrested for being drunk, so they would take law, you know, items like shawls and, and etc. So they wouldn't hang themselves in the in the cells, or um, no mention of a shawl there. Her boyfriend visited the mortuary to identify her body, and and he was upset, um, but not so upset that he didn't take a minute to rifle through her hat, looking for spare change. Um, <laughs> That's true love. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's what it is. Is it's true desperation. He had just a day before had to sell his only pair of boots, or he had to pawn them to get money for tea and food. So, um, I, th it, I think, <clears throat> but to say, I think Russell Edwards, um, in my interview with him, said that uh, he said the shawl wasn't hers. Right, I'm getting was, to that. <laughs> yeah, he said it was uh, Ted. Yeah, in fairness to Russell, he, you know, but see, here's the thing. The shawl comes from a family with a story. The only reason the shawl is important is because of this family story. So, but, but Russell Edwards recognizes that their story makes absolutely no sense in the historical record. So, But instead of deciding, oh, well, then maybe this shawl has nothing to do with the Ripper case, he instead goes a different direction and makes up his own story, which is the shawl must have belonged to Jack the Ripper himself. 
um, who Russell believes is Aaron Kosminski, a, a 23-year-old um, Polish-Jewish immigrant into London, who subsequently, in the years after the murders, he went crazy and was put into an asylum. Right. Uh, so, so we have instead of the incredulous story of Eddowes owning an eight-foot-long woman shawl made of silk, we instead have Jack the Ripper himself with this giant shawl. Uh, well, I say giant. It's just it's not giant. It's just long. It's very eight feet is very long. Right. It's, so we have Tom Baker, Doctor Who, walking through Whitechapel, uh, killing these women with a woman shawl, and uh, <clears throat> that makes no sense either. It makes absolutely no sense, especially since in Mitre Square, he cut off a large portion of Catherine Eddowes's apron ostensibly so he would have something to carry the organs he stole away in. Well, now, if you're already padded down with shawls and all this stuff, which you can just discard at will, why take the time and risk being captured to cut off her, her large apron to take with you? It doesn't make sense. And then where was the shawl left? Because it wasn't left in Mitre Square. As I mentioned, they did artist drawings of the area and everything in it, and there was no shawl. So even if the Ripper brought the shawl in, where did he leave it? Because he didn't leave it in Mitre Square. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of questions there. And uh, and what yeah. about the other theory about Charles Cross? Charles Cross, Charles Cross. Well, let's go back a minute to the 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 shawl because uh, oh, there's okay. something. So now, of course, people can say, well, yes, but if the shawl renders DNA from Catherine Eddowes and Aaron Kosminski, then the whole historical argument doesn't even matter, because then it does put those two people together with the shawl. And I would agree with that. Um, although, if anyone's been paying attention to the media since the book has come out, uh, the, the DNA evidence is uh, apparently, as it was put into the book, does, doesn't add up. And I'm no scientist. I don't pretend to understand that side of it. Uh, I knew from the get-go there was uh, there was no DNA on the shawl, but it appears some mistake was made, and that the uh, the DNA that was thought could only have belonged to Eddowes could have belonged to most of the women in, of London, or any, <laughs> it, it could have belonged to anybody. It's not unique. There's no fraud here. Some people have suggested that the uh, that Russell Edwards committed fraud, and he didn't. Uh, you know, and, and he's no more scientist than I am, and, and his scientists, no one committed fraud. They just, the only thing they might be guilty of is rushing to publication, you know, a little quick, because no peer review had been done of the work or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? No paper published. Um, so it's, it's not a case of fraud, but um, that's, if Aaron Kosminski was Jack the Ripper, then it had, it's not because of any DNA findings, and it's certainly not because of that, that shawl. Right. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, and then back to the Charles Cross. Charles Cross is the man who discovered the body of Polly Nichols, um, the first canonical Ripper victim. He was a car man um, walking to work. He was a delivery driver, basically, and he was walking to work, and he noticed uh, something large and black across the street laying on the sidewalk and he thought it was a tarp and he walked it was outside of a stable gate so it's exactly where you might expect to see a tarp discarded 
And but he was halfway across the street, and he noticed that it was not a tarp; it was a woman. And it was around that time he heard footsteps approaching, and he uh, turned and saw another fellow coming up. And this person's name was Robert Paul. And he reached over and said, "Hey, you know, look at this over here. I think this is a woman." And they went and checked and decided she was either drunk or dead. It was too dark for them to see the cut on her neck. And, you know, they couldn't hang around. They had to get to work. Because back then, if I mean, you, you know, you, Charles Cross had worked at the same place for 20 years. But if he made the habit of being late to work, he'd, he'd be fired outright. And there was no unemployment back then. You just starved. Yeah. So they kept walking to work. On their way, they ran into a police constable and, and, and uh, said, you know, there's a woman either drunk or dead in, in Buck's Row. And uh, this constable kept knocking up people. Remember I mentioned earlier, you pay someone to knock and wake you up. That's what he was doing when they ran into him. And that kind of bothered them a bit that he didn't rush to Buck's Row. He kept knocking people up. But he did eventually make his way there. Uh, in the interim, while Cross and Paul were walking, a police constable by the name of John Neal independently came across Polly Nichols' body. And he had a lantern on him a bullseye lantern which he could use to see that she had in fact been murdered he used he flashed the lantern to silently signal a neighboring constable who came over and then saw these constables converged and went about their investigation so anyways that's who charles cross is he was a carman who discovered polly nichols body now over the years since the 90s at least uh researchers by the name of uh like uh, Derek Osborne and then later Mike Connor. And a lot of us have speculated, uh, and they did so in a journal called Ripper on it. They published articles talking about, hmm, you know, Charles Cross was either the man who discovered Polly Nichols or Robert Paul was the man who discovered Polly Nichols with her killer standing nearby. And it just, you know... Nothing serious, lighthearted speculation. Um, but I've said over the years that had no other murders occurred, um, it's very possible Charles Cross might have been looked at or even arrested for the murder of Polly Nichols. Just by virtue of the fact that another man saw him standing near the body. <clears throat> well, in more recent years, two researchers by the name of Christer Holmgren, Holmgren from Sweden and an Englishman by the name of Edward Stowe have become obsessed with this idea that Charles Cross was Jack the Ripper. <clears throat> and recently, um, Channel 5 in London put out a documentary, which is on YouTube. Anyone here in the States who wants to watch it, just go to YouTube and type in Missing Evidence Jack the Ripper. One of the best suspect documentaries ever created. Uh, Definitely. I mean, if you watch that, you're going to come away going, come away going, man, they nailed it. This guy is Jack the Ripper because it's very subtle. Uh, it's not overly sensational. And if everything they said was completely true, then I would have to say, yeah, they they probably have a, uh, you know, a good argument here. The thing is, um, if you stand back and look at it more objectively. Um, their entire argument is based on timings, like Charles Cross had to have left his home at this point to get here, uh, to have had enough time to find Nichols to bring her back to kill. And <clears throat> the thing, the thing is, is that I don't know that their times are accurate. In other words, uh, 
if Charles Cross left home when he did, and, and at, which he claims he left at 3.30 a.m., I believe that's the time Polly Nichols was being murdered. And uh, and he gets to Buck's Row sometime later. Um, and uh, and Paul, when Robert Paul left his house, I don't think it adds up. I think Charles Cross just, I think it's just a case where Robert Paul happened to be walking a short distance behind Charles Cross when Charles Cross was the first to discover the body and then notify the man behind him. And uh, and that's all it was. Because here's the thing. Charles Cross had, had never been in trouble with the law. Uh, and he continued to live for like 30-odd years after the Ripper murders. Uh, never was arrested. Never, uh, you know, he, he stopped killing for some reason and just lived a normal life after that. Can't find any dirt on this guy uh, before or after the Ripper murders. And he clearly wasn't an out-of-control alcoholic or anything else you might expect the Ripper to be because he maintained the same job for decades. And I, and I know serial killers like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, did the same thing. But uh, my point being that the entire case against Charles Cross rests on one thing. He was seen standing near the body. Now, this documentary, when you watch it, it has him kneeling over the body as though he's proposing marriage to it. He's on one knee, and uh, that's not how it happened. He was standing. He never got that close to the body before he and Robert Paul went over to Inspector. He was yards from the body, standing in the middle of the street when Robert Paul came upon him, and he turned and said, hey, let's, let's go over here and check the body. Unfortunately, the police did not search either man to see if they had a knife on them or anything else. They should have. They didn't. Um, so, unfortunately, that would have cleared him right then. If he had no knife on him, then clearly he wasn't the murder. He didn't have any blood on him. Uh, Jack Thurper may also not have had blood on himself after killing Polly Nichols. So that doesn't clear him. But it's not a question of clearing him. It's a question of why would you think he's guilty in the first place? The only reason is is because of his proximity to the body when Robert Paul came up. But the reality is somebody had to discover each of these women. Somebody did discover each one of them. That doesn't make him their killer. Yeah, it's just uh, not enough. Right, exactly. We need some, And that's what I've been telling those two researchers. I'm like, uh, give me something. Give me a reason to think Charles Cross is a bad guy. Uh, anything. Jaywalking. I don't know. Just something. Give me a reason to put him into frame. Now here's the strange thing. Charles Cross is not a was not a contemporary suspect. He's he, he's a witness, um, and there's no evidence against him. Here's the strange thing: the case against him is still more compelling and more convincing than most of the other theories out there. So, um, you know that that says something about you know the suspects in this case. There's just not a lot of evidence against anybody right now. Um, you know, in one of my upcoming books, I'll be presenting a, a case against someone. Uh, I won't be arguing for them as the Ripper because I'm not convinced they are by, or that they killed anybody. But I'm going to be presenting evidence um, that's probably more compelling than anything that's been put forward. But up to this moment, Charles Cross and the, that documentary, Missing Evidence, Jack the Ripper, is one of the most compelling and convincing suspect arguments to date. And the sad truth is the guy's not even a suspect. He's just a witness. <laughs> so up till now, what have you had or read 
or or seen or anything that's been the most influence on you oh in in you mean in terms of jack the ripper stuff wow that's that's uh the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question were the books by Stuart p evans um he uh has put out uh, a jack the ripper book called uh, along with keith skinner his co-author called The Ultimate Jack the Ripper Companion, also called The Ultimate Jack the Ripper Sourcebook in England. And what this is, is these are the actual Ripper police files. He and Keith went through the actual files and hand-transcribed them, which is not easy to do because they were reading 100-year-old Victorian handwriting, you know, and, and police jargon and all this. But they did it. They transcribed all this stuff and put it into a, a book. So it's the single most indispensable resource for anyone researching Jack the Ripper. Also, Stewart's other books, um, The Man Who Hunted Jack the Ripper, uh, and uh, let's see, uh, Letters from Hell about the Ripper Letters, and Scotland Yard Investigates, and he wrote the first book on suspect Francis Tumblety back in 95. Um, which is, uh, to me, a hallmark suspect. Tumblety's a horrible suspect, but the uh, process that Stuart went through to research and present the book, I think, set a good example for suspect books to follow. And so he would, his, his work, Stuart P. Evans, I'd put right up there at the top. Also, Paul Begg has published some books, uh, either alone, such as Jack the Ripper, The Facts, or with co-author John Bennett, He's more recently published Jack the Ripper, The Forgotten Victims, which are about the non-canonical victims. That came out a month after my book. And, uh, you know, and uh, the complete and essential Jack the Ripper. These are books that, uh, you know, people would do well to read. Uh, Just keep in mind that in any Ripper book you read on the earlier murders, you're not getting the whole story. You're going to get a lot more in my book, which is entitled The Bank Holiday Murders. And then in my next book that I'm working on now, it's going to be a while, but uh, I'm looking at the canonical murders and going through them with a fine-tooth comb and coming up with new stuff. So when anyone gets that book, they're going to, again, read um, new facts and perspectives they hadn't seen before uh, that hopefully will advance the case a little further. Yeah. What do you think about the letters that were, that were sent? Uh I, I think my opinion is in line with most Ripperologists, and that is that there is not one letter, including the From Hell letter, where we're compelled to conclude it was written by Jack the Ripper. Um, the From Hell letter would be the one that where we most of us give it a maybe. Uh, some are give it a firm yes, some give it a firm no, but most of us are willing to accept that might have been because it had a kidney with it. You know, you don't just go to the store and buy a human kidney. They're, they're, they were possible to obtain. But then, you know, you have other questions like, well, if someone did go to the trouble of obtaining a human kidney, why would they, why would they, number one, obviously it would be to perpetrate a hoax. So if you're going to perpetrate a hoax, why not go on a grand scale and send it to the police or to the central news agency who had received the Dear Boss letter, the Jack the Ripper letter? Instead, they send it to this obscure guy, George Lusk, who for all they knew would just toss it in the trash, which in fact is almost what he did. Um, so there was a particular specific reason to send it to George Lusk. And, and again, that, that, that's as far as I'm going to go on that. But I, you know, I, I know who sent the From Hell letter. I just don't know if the kidney was Edo's or if it wasn't. Yeah. No one will, until, until, if and until that kidney is discovered and, and 
DNA test, so we'll never, ever know that answer. But that one might be a Jack the Ripper letter, and and it's, it did have a sister letter. There was a postcard that Lusk had received prior to that that he said and others said was written in the same hand. <clears throat> called uh, I called the Box of Toys postcard. It did not have a kidney or anything with it, but uh, um, you know it. Uh, so, so the from hell letter and related letters may have been written by Jack the Ripper. The dear boss letter signed Jack the Ripper that gave of the world that name. No reason to assume it was. It, there was nothing in that letter that only the killer would have known. You know what I mean? And I, I think if the actual killer had written that letter, he would have wanted to make sure the police knew it was from him and would have included something. Hmm. Okay. Well, so let's give us your information so that people can get a hold of you if you'd like to. Sure. Uh, well, let's see. First of all, if you want to read my book, um, you can do so by going to Amazon, you know, .com, Amazon.co.uk, Dot .au, wherever you live. Uh, it's available in paperback, <coughs> excuse me, and on Kindle. My Kindle edition is only $2.99. Um, and for those in America, if you buy my paperback and then later want the Kindle edition, uh, you can download it for free. Once you've bought the paperback, the Kindle edition will be free to you. Um, and the, again, the book is called The Bank Holiday Murders by Tom Westcott. Uh, you can also catch me on Facebook. Um, I am a moderator of the Facebook Jack the Ripper page. Just type in Jack the Ripper, and it's the page that's named just Jack the Ripper. And uh, join us there to talk, um, or you can always find me uh, arguing with people at casebook.org or at the wonderful jtrforums.com, moderated by Howard Brown. Um, any of those resources uh, are good. I have a website. I don't do much with it, but it's ripperbook.com. In the future, I will when I find a good webmaster. If, they, if you're out there, hit me up. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's 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 a, I think that's a, that about does it. Okay. And uh, so, when do you plan on getting your new book out? Um, Got to write it first. I'm writing oh. it now, uh, <laughs> and it's slow going because again, I'm doing the same thing I did with Bank Holiday. I'm researching while I write. I'm going back over everything with a fine tooth comb, and and it's a slow process, but it's a rewarding process. And I'm still working on the Polly Nichols chapter, so I obviously I have a long ways to go. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, I'll have that out uh, next year. Well, that's great. Not, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the end of. Oh, okay. Let's say end of 2015 or 2016 sometime. It'll be out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to it. And uh, I appreciate you being here. That oh, was a blast. I appreciate the invite, Alan. Yeah. We'll do it again. Thanks very much. You got it. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. I'll be back.